You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment. And I can tell you that you want to listen on to find out what she has to say about why you have to keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper to find out what a property is truly worth. It's just knowing that market down, I guess, a suburb level, street level, you know, what's the right side of the highway. I mean, there's there's parts, you know, people said, oh, I love this house. But no, it's on the northern side of the highway. Forget it. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Sydney buyer's agent Shelley Horton. Shelley started her professional career as a property valuer after she gained a Bachelor of Business degree majoring in land economics. She then moved into international mortgage insurance and demanding corporate property roles, leading large property teams tasked with selling a portfolio of residential properties across Australia and New Zealand. A few years ago, she took all of this experience and set up her own buyer's agency called Albion Avenue. She has skin in the game too, having personally bought, sold and successfully renovated properties for a profit and has now enjoyed a 20-year career honing her skills in every aspect of the residential property industry. With her unique valuation real estate and residential mortgage industry background, Shelley also consults to some of Australia's leading financial institutions and it's this unique combination of experience that we'd like to explore today. Thank you for joining us, Shelley. Thank you for having me. Hi, Shelley. How are you doing? Good, thank you. The valuation is such a, an important part of property buying, right? So, you know, one side, you can pick a good asset, you know what it is, you can do all your due diligence, and then you get to the point where, what should I pay? And so valuing is such a key part of what a good property buyer needs to do. What do you think drives a good valuation? What do some good valuers do that some may not? I think the industry's changed certainly from when I first started out. So I think today a good valuer would keep in touch with local agents. So not just go off realestate.com and domain and those sort of online websites where pretty much you can go and reference any property that sold what it sold for, but it's digging in behind that and understanding the why. So by that, I mean how many people were on a particular property? Why did it sell for what it did? You know, was it sold at auction? Was it a private treaty sale? Was it sold beforehand? There's a lot more that I think Mm. drives what someone pays for a property. And a a good valuer would know more about that as opposed to just looking up number 10 Smith Street, for instance, sold for 1.5 million. That's it. Put it in my report. Here's some other sales. It's understanding the market, I think, and taking it to the next level. I remember being a sales agent and there were certain valuers that used to ring regularly asking those sorts of questions. And I can imagine that now the banks aren't paying enough money for those valuations, are they? So there's not a lot of time to be ringing agents and getting that sort of in-depth background. 
Yeah, spot on. When I started, I remember one of my first jobs was to go and pick up a disc from an office which had all the sales that had transacted and it was usually a couple of months in arrears. So you're behind the market and lagging. We'd go back to the office, wow. we'd load it up, <laughs> we'd then know what's sold. And the only way back then, to, to your point, Veronica, was to, to go and develop relationships with agents um, and find out, ring them up, drop into their office, ask them, what did you sell this one for? Because domain and real estate, those online portals, they weren't really established back then. So it was developing a relationship with the agents, finding the why behind what something sold for. And so today it, it's become very commoditized, the industry. So mm. um, I mean, I've been out of it for the best part of 10 years, but but still have sort of contacts and still um, do little bits and pieces where I'm sort of keeping track with what's happening. Uh, and it is very much a widget-driven industry. Yeah. They certainly operate in patches and they have local market experience, but they could be doing several valuations a day. And also the way in which valuations are done has changed. So uh, when I started out, you would go out and every property was fully inspected. But today, yeah. you know, there's, there's desktop assessments, uh, there's curbsides where someone might mm-hmm. drive past a property mm-hmm. and they all have their place. But it's certainly changed and what valuers get paid. I'm sure if you asked any of them, uh, they'd, uh, they'd be up in arms about it. It certainly has changed. Yeah, I think there's a, with bank lending, there's it's even a bigger push to less full valuations. And, you know, I think because the banks go, well, this is a bit pointless. We've got all that data that the valuation company is using anyway for recent sales. And so they're kind of like, well, why are we wasting three, dollars $400 on this valuation? where they're just going to use the core logic data that we've got anyway, which is crazy because a lot of that valuation could be one sale that was highly competed on and went for a hundred grand more than it was probably worth because two people battled it out. And so you're right. Like it's, you need to, you need to have had that conversation with the agent to, to know, well, that was probably not a fair, you know, one to kind of reference because it was probably overpaid a little bit. I think too, Chris, in your question initially it was you mentioned sort of the valuation is important because you need to know what to pay whereas the bank valuation isn't about helping the buyer know what to pay the bank valuation is really around risk management for the bank right whereas the buyer themselves needs to know what to pay because generally you've actually made that offer or actually bought the property before the valuation has even been done by the bank which means that you need listeners we all need to actually be able to go through a process of working out the price to pay. And I guess I'd be interested to know as a buyer's agent now, Shelley, what process do you use, which would be very, very different, I'm guessing, to what a bank might use in order to determine the right price to pay? So I I guess using the valuation background, I look at comparable sales. So I look at everything relevant in the particular market I'm looking at for a particular client look at what it's sold for, make further inquiries if I don't already know with the agents in terms of the circumstances behind the sale. Did the seller, for instance, um, have they had their board elsewhere and therefore they were inclined to discount more so than, than they may normally have been willing to? You know, whether there are several people on the property, did it sell under competitive bidding at auction? I look at all those sorts of things. I also then look at what else is on the market because I think that dictates too in terms of choice and, and, and particularly in a market at the moment where it's certainly shifted. I think what else is competing at the time, what else is available for a, for a potential buyer, I think that's important. And I also look at indexing. So I, I probably use a couple of different methods when I'm sort of putting together an appraisal for a client. I also look at what if it sold, for instance, in the last couple of years. I, I look at sort of, you know, your core logic data and, and APM and, and all those sort of other providers that are out there and sort of look at, well, what's the market done? Does it kind of make sense? So I use a couple of sort of checks and balances, I guess, just to make sure that I think something looks right. One of the, I guess, um, definitions of market value when you're valuing a property, you know, and I sort of take this with me is 
Uh, it's a concept of a willing buyer and a willing seller. So mm-hmm. nobody sort of acted, you know, um, with compulsion. Yeah. Uh, it was forced to sell, um, that it's arm's length so the parties weren't related in any way, that it was sold after, um, you know, proper marketing and exposure to the market. So there's some things, I guess, that play into that. And then there's there's sort of an, another rule that sort of says um, that each party acted knowledgeably, prudently, and, um, and I think without compulsion. So... We all know that that happens in real estate. So, um, you know, that helps, I guess, make some sense of those sales. So I might look at something and go, okay, well, I think property's worth between, say, 1 and 1.1. Hang on, there's a sale here that went for 1.2. On paper, it looks like it's the same as as a property Mm. I'm looking at for a client. And then I'll start to dig around a little bit, find out again. The agent might say, well, actually... Ten people came along to the option and it just went crazy. Yeah. Or, you know, there could, could be some other circumstances behind it. Cash buyers, I find, you know, sometimes if you find out a little bit more with the agents where you go to an auction, Veronica, you know, you know it's like when you see people sort of bidding and they just don't seem to have, you know, um, <laughs> a, a stop button. They just keep going and going and yeah. going. And and usually it's because they're not relying on finance. And I find that's probably something that sort of holds people back in terms of price or as well. the elephant is rampant. <laughs> yeah. Go back to episodes, I think it's episode two, um, uh, when we interviewed Damien Cooley, I think or was David Scholes was episode eight, I think. So we've got two auctioneers that we had amazing interviews with and and talked to us ar- around the tactics that, that they use as auctioneers in order to get people buying. But I've seen it. You've seen it, I'm sure, at auction. You know, people do go there and their egos get involved or the fear of missing out or this whole idea about, um, you know, I don't want some, I don't want to lose. I don't want to mm. lose. That can drive as well. So it's not always about the fact that they don't need finance. But certainly in the current market, I think that don't need finance can play out. Mm. It's even last week, one of my clients was it was happening to him. He's a first time buyer, and he was buying a, a unit in Surrey Hills, and he, you know, it's it's, it's a it's a good buy, the actual place he's buying, but um, he's using a buyer's agent. Yeah, and he made an offer which I thought was a pretty genuine generous offer, and uh, it got rejected. And at last minute, someone came in and trumped him, and they trumped him by fifty thousand dollars. And so I think they've gone over the top Mm. and he's just in a very fortunate financial position because of what he does and things like that. And he was like, well, I can afford it. I can pay it. And I'm like, no, 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 hang on, hang on. You've, you've already put a pretty good offer in. This guy's coming overs. What's his buyer's agent telling him? Ah, uh, no, no, he's the same thing. Oh. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 it's the same thing. Um, and we, you know, we had a chat and everything like that. But yeah, we had to calm him down because he was so entrenched on being able to wanting to buy it. But mm. And uh, he'd already thought he was going to live there. He put a really good offer in. He'd been yeah. rejected. So, yeah, sometimes when you are cashed up, you you know, you just start acting irrationally because you can afford it. Yeah, you don't value the money as much, do you? It's true. So it and you talk about comparable sales and every now and then one sticks out and you sort of got to go and find the why behind it and it's a really good point. And I know myself when the market's rising, for instance, there's certain sales that would stick out like dog's balls, wouldn't they? I mean, like <laughs> you just think, oh, my God, that, that there's still an enormous amount of growth that needs to happen in order to absorb that. And I know I can remember one particular example a few years ago there was I was looking for some clients who were buying an apartment in Dremoyne and there was one particular auction. I went to this auction and I was just like, What? Um, obviously we didn't buy it. And for the next six months, every time we did our pricing research, that property would come up and it's still stuck out, you know, for, for a good six months in a rising market. But I'm seeing the flip side now. There's the ones that stick out for the opposite reason, which is some of them have sold and you think, my God, that was a bargain. Yeah. And, you know, they are going to, those people are going to make enormous gain as soon as the market just sort of goes back to normal, they've immediately made a gain. There's, there's a few of those around at the moment, aren't there? 
Yeah, there is. And I think anyone who's astute and following the market will be looking for those opportunities mm. and doing your homework. That's where you know, okay, that's good value. And part of that could be, again, the circumstances behind the sale, that yeah. the seller had to get out potentially, or, you know, maybe it was a relationship breakdown or something mm. like that. Yeah. that. You know, maybe they, they had to sell rather than they wanted to sell. Yeah. Um, but it's knowing that which, you know, you can help too because I've tried that on lately with with, with a couple of agents with properties, yeah, mm. not not making offensive offers but at the lower end, yeah. just trying it It'll on. Be cheeky. Yeah, and then just <laughs> see how you go and, and mm. usually it generates a conversation. It it might get a conversation started and at least you get a, a bit more information and you go, well, we won't quite get it for that but we're not going to have to pay too much more either. Yeah, so. yeah we've, we've picked up a few along those lines as well. What is interesting that I've seen is that you can really tell the difference between agents that have been in the game longer than one boom. <laughs> the, the ones that have never experienced these sort of conditions, they are panicked and often they have attracted panicked vendors as well and the pair of panicked people tend to really uh, knee-jerk and often do undersell. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think I've seen a couple of cycles. I've, I've been a buyer's agent for sort of four to five years, but prior to that as a, as a value, I've seen a couple of different cycles, GFC, mm. even mm. post that sort of in the mid-90s, things sort of slowed down. And, yeah, different agents at the moment. I mean, I, I, some people have pretty much said, you know, if I'm looking at a property and my client might not be interested, I'll We'll take any offer, just put one forward and you kind of go, that. Oh, okay, on. if only they were interested in that property, <laughs> yeah, <bugger. laughs> but they weren't, uh, this, this, could be, uh, this could be an easy an easy target. I mean, that's really dangerous, right, because they should be looking out for the vendor and the vendor's interest and they're saying, we'll just take any offer. Yeah, but they think they are looking after the vendor by doing it because they don't understand that there's still a buyer out there and as long as they've got reasonable expectation and they just have to hold you know, there's sometimes they need to hold. There's sometimes they're being stupid because they've got overly high expectations. But there are mm. other times where it's just actually hold. That's reasonable expectation. It's just taking longer to find that exactly, buyer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's that's where they're knee jerking, and we're the ones that haven't understood that. You know, they still think you've got to sell in three weeks. Yeah. yeah let's just be yeah. a bit patient here and and write it out. I mean, a lot of sellers will be freaking out because they'll be going, well, a lot of bad press out there. Um, you know, they've the agent hasn't got the confidence to say to them, you know, let's just hold on or let's rent it out for another year. Um, you know, so I guess you can see, you're right. Like the, the agent's a little bit conflicted there a little bit because they haven't got, they can't really just say, we'll just rent it out for you. Come back to me next year because obviously they won't be paid. So well, they know, might, so, they mm. might even tap into that to try and get their vendor down to accept something, you know, sort of play on that panic that's out there in the yeah. media at the moment. And so, mm. oh, you know, things aren't looking good. They could get worse. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're in a situation where they feel pressured to mm. to, to take sort of any offer. And yep. there's sunk cost in that too, people, because remember back in episode one we talked through with Simon uh, Russell, the behavioural scientist, and sunk cost goes, you know, the vendor has sunk cost. They've just spent money on marketing. They've spent money having the house style. They've spent all this sort of money. They feel invested in that sale as well. So from a buyer's perspective, you've got one of these agents, you've got a vendor that's in that panic and they're under pressure because of that sunk cost. You know, there are opportunities out there for buyers at the moment. Yeah, and I guess it's really disappointing for, you know, a seller is you put the property on the market, you go through this whole campaign, no one wants your property. It's pretty deflating and you don't really want to tell people that you couldn't sell it. And so you're more inclined just to sell it and try to keep the price, you know, undisclosed. Your A-grades aren't suffering in the current market. Would you agree, Shelley? Oh, 100%. I think in this market you've got probably a smaller pool of buyers as well just because finance is harder to get. We don't have a great deal of supply and, and quality supply. So you've got mm. less competition. You've got more choice, even though it's 
from a sort of, I guess, a low base. Mm. So people are going to go for the for the top tier, top quality properties first, yep. and they don't necessarily have two or three people these days fighting over it with them. So um, for you to get to down to a, consider a B grade property, it, potentially it might be priced, but heavily discounted make you yeah. think yeah. about it. Otherwise, why would you? So, I mean, that's a really good point. If you're going to buy a grade B, you've got to get a grade B price and people haven't been mm. doing that for the last six years. I know mm. that you did a lot of work in Genworth in the lender's mortgage insurance space. I guess that works really well when they, they buy a property, they pay the lender's mortgage insurance and they buy a great property and it goes up and they keep paying the mortgage. I believe that you did a lot of work in the other side when you know things didn't go so well. Could you tell us a bit more about your time at Genworth? Yeah, so I've Started at Genworth after sort of a 10, 11-year career in the valuation industry. So sort of using that residential valuation experience, moved in to mortgage insurance where effectively, you know, it covers the, the, the lender in the event that the borrower defaults on their home loan, but it gets you into the market sooner than you would otherwise if you had to save for a deposit. So uh, coincidentally, I used mortgage insurance when I bought my very first property, uh, helped me get into the market. I only had a 5% deposit back in the day in the mid-90s and have done so quite, <laughs> quite well from that over, over the years. But yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, the, the idea behind mortgage insurance is to get, um, you know, people into the home ownership space and, and give them the opportunity to buy a property that they might not otherwise have. You know, if, given they've got to save for 20% usually. Yeah, so let's just quickly spell that out. So basically, generally speaking, if you have a 20% deposit, so if you've saved up 20% plus the costs to buy, so stamp duty, et cetera, yep. then you're not going to need to pay lender's mortgage insurance. But if you've got less than that, unless you're a doctor or a lawyer, correct? Because there are certain professions yep. where they don't need to pay it. So I think they can get yeah, over so 10%. Yeah, accountants. It's actually getting broader and broader, which is interesting. Mm, okay. Maybe we should do a whole episode on this. So if you've got your 20% plus your, plus your cost, you don't need to worry about it. If you've got less than that, that's an option for you to get into the market. But the bank wants a bit of a guarantee against them losing money, which is what the lender's mortgage insurance is, isn't it? It's, the, yeah. it's to cover the bank, not, not the cover borrower. you, even though you're paying the premium. Correct. <laughs> and how does that actually work in the, the situation? Let's say, uh, you know, mum and dad, you know, um, buy a property and they buy it for a million dollars and they put a 10% deposit down. Um, but then three years later, you know, one of them loses their jobs. They really struggle on the loan and the property goes down. It's only worth eight fifty. How does that whole process kind of get solved? Well, I think in the first instance, certainly from my experience, um, when I was sort of working in that space, First and foremost, the, the, the first priority is to try and keep that borrower in the property because it's in no one's interest for someone to lose their home, um, you know, financially, socially, ethically, all those things, right? No one wants to see that. And as much as the big banks might get a, a hard time, it, it's not in their interest either. So, you know, you, you would reach out to the borrower, usually through the lender, to understand the circumstances. And, and for, you know, it can be a various number of reasons. People don't want to lose their home. It could be sickness. It could be they've lost their job. Their earning capacity has been reduced because, you know, maybe their hours have been reduced. So there's an inherent reason driving why they can no longer afford their mortgage. So first port of call would be try and work that out. So develop a solution. Can they reduce payments? Can they capitalise the interest they're not paying and then effectively mm -hmm. spread it out over the, the balance of the lot, the loan. And, you know, there are there's some other options, but but that certainly was always the first yeah. uh, and, and 
foremost priority um, to keep someone in there. But if for whatever reason that wasn't possible, then, you know, you're looking at how to make the best of a, I guess, a bad situation. And, and you know, in some cases, um, properties had to be sold. And one of the things when I was there that we, we sort of started to look at was working with the borrower to sell their property rather than lenders come in and take possession because it's, mm. I guess, a nicer way to exit the property. And, and typically... Uh, if someone thinks the lenders come in and take possession of property and they've got to sell it, people start thinking, has to sell, discount price. So, you know, you can take that away by sort of working directly with the borrower and, you know, appointing a, a good agent, maybe spending some money on the property, that sort of thing. Like you would ordinarily do if it was your property, you know, how, how do you, you know, make the most of the market? improve the property, the appeal, that sort of thing. So we, we sort of try a whole different range of strategies to, right. to try and improve the presentation and the outcome, mm. yep. getting the best people on the job if it did have to be sold. But, but I can assure you that first and foremost it was trying to avoid that yep. and trying to make sure you know, there was another way of trying to keep, keep someone in their, in their and property. And if it does get to the point where the lender's forcing the sale and it comes in less than, well, how does it all work? So basically sale price, less or your usual costs, so agents commission, you know, legals, yep. um, any sort of presentation costs. Um, you know, there are agents that are involved in sort of coordinating that whole process, so mm. their fees. Uh, and if there was a shortfall, then lenders mortgage insurer would cover that. Do they then pursue buyer? Um, it would depend. So, so um, there is an avenue for that though, isn't there? I guess there would be, yeah. yeah. Um, but then that would, you know, I guess that's up to the lender and, and the relevant mortgage insurer as to how they would approach that. Yeah, I mean, it's a big risk with, you know, a uh, difference. Even if you're buying at 80%, people think, well, if it goes un- down 20% or 30%, I can just walk away. But, you know, a lot of people are bought in mining towns, for example, and they bought a place for a million dollars and now it's worth 300000 You can't just walk away from that, you know, 500 grand of extra debt. Um, mm. it's actually, you, you, you'll go bankrupt. Um, you know, mm. there's, if you have to sell right now and, and what happens is, is that that basically destroys someone's life because there's no way that property is ever going to go back to what it was worth. They can't walk away from the debt and they've just got to keep paying off prop, a debt that they're never going to possibly get back. Or, you know, if there might be a reality that that money is just not there to go and get back as well, I guess that, you know, mm. in the whole scheme of things, you know, there might be a balance outstanding, but if a lender was to you know, go down that path, there may be nothing yeah. to go after anyway. So so the moral of the story is if you're going to be really, really risky in your investment strategy and go and buy somewhere that's <laughs> been sold by a spruker, <laughs> make sure you've got no other assets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in that situation, you probably would try to get Lena's mortgage insurance just to protect you as well. But it doesn't you know? protect, that's the point. It doesn't it protect the buyer. protects the lender, yeah. Yeah, but the lender's got a, a recourse. So they're going to go to the mortgage insurers first before they go to you. Yeah, but doesn't this the question I'm just trying to because I've been under the impression that there still is the opportunity for the insurance company to go back to the buyer for more. Is that do I have that right or wrong in terms of recourse? Yeah, I yeah. think the option. I, you know, it would depend on how things are structured. I mean, I don't want to sort of get into the, mm. the details of that, but if there was an avenue, you know, in terms of mortgage insurance is covering a lender. Um, and then those responsibilities, if they're transferred, then there, there potentially would be recourse. Yeah, the problem is as well, though, that the mortgage insurers don't want to go into areas where they know that, you know, there's additional risks in terms of certain types of property. 
I mean, was that your experience when you worked at Gemworth that they would avoid certain postcodes and certain types of assets? Yeah, and I think that's industry-wide at the moment. So, you know, whether it be particular locations, you know, there's high density or uh, restricted postcode areas in sort of urban areas in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, where they feel that there's an over-concentration of units. Mm. But then you may have sort of more regional areas with, you know, mining area type sensitivities where it's very much a a, a boom-bust cycle. And yes, people buy these properties and, you know, they, they double, triple in value and then all of a sudden they're still holding them where they should be selling at the peak and getting out, making their money. But um, there's certainly different ways to to manage risk and, and you know, it's at, a I guess, a macro level when you, when you look at postcodes and coverage, but then also security-wise. So the actual mm. property, so things like, uh, and this isn't mortgage insurance specific, this is just mortgage industry, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, specific, but, you know, minimum living areas on units, um, mm. you know, when properties get above land size, above two hectares, you know, I guess they're considered more technical, yep. more regional, rural. Therefore, you may, you know, getting back to the valuation thing, it might may need a more detailed valuation carried out on the property if it's, you know, deemed to be more special or unique in nature because then you may not have a bigger market. So if it everything did go pear-shaped and yep. a property did have to be sold, what are you going to get back for that security? Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, you might see loan-to-value ratios cut back because, you know, a lender wants more skin in the game up front to yeah. cover for that risk. So. And fundamentally underpinning all of this is the fact that property is risky and we all need to remember that. Yeah. It's a long-term <laughs> game. Not always, though, because, you know, we've been talking to a number of researchers about it. Yes, in Sydney, for argument's sake, it's a long-term game. But if you're buying in, say somebody bought in Hobart recently, that should not be a long-term game. That really mm. should be a situation where you buy on the in the up and then you actually sell before or at the peak. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I think with the, you know, with LMI, I think it's a, very, you know, misunderstood and people just assume, well, I want to buy this studio apartment in Potts Point. Um, the <laughs> banks will give me 90%. Um, and then when they go to get financed, the the bank will say, well, no, it's only 32 square mm-hmm. metres. And at that point they think, oh, okay, well, is there another lender? And what should really be going in their head is that banks don't want these assets. The banks do not want to have exposure to, you know, very small studios or apartments in areas where there's lots more apartments because they understand the risks. And so if a bank's not going to give you finance, that's a real big warning sign to say, look, don't buy it. You know, you're in a wrong asset, you know, and that's um, a lot of people just keep looking for another lender and it's yeah. like, well, no, you probably should stop looking in this area. I think I 100% agree and it, it comes down to, that's one of the factors we look for in terms of capital growth is like how many people can buy that yeah. property, how many want to and how many can. But the thing, actually, this is just a bit of a segue here, but it does my head in. You know, we talk about affordability in this city and I really, and my first property was a 36 square metre studio <laughs> back in the day when I could borrow, I borrowed 95% of it. You know, I know I'm talking like a, the Gen X I am, but that, that's not really the point. The point is that in certain areas, I think there'd be great opportunity for first home buyers to get into the market. You know, I think this sort of under 50 square metre thing, I, I do think that that in some ways, that's a risk created by the banks. You know, and I know that you don't want basically developers building this in high-rises full of 50-square-metre apartment or 40-square-metre apartments. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the fact that there are certain areas in Sydney where they're very popular and buyers are still buying them and finding ways around it because they see that as their entree into the market. And I think that that's an opportunity a bit missed personally. Yeah, I think, you know, in the inner east of Sydney in particular, Elizabeth Bay, Potts Point, those sort of areas, um, there's some pretty cool small 
space mm. apartments that are going around. I actually read an article the other day about uh, some apartment that won a, a design award and it was 38 square metres, yeah, I think. I know that one. And mm. they've done a fantastic job mm. with this place. And I think in those sorts of markets, they are quite unique. And sometimes people might use that as a, um, a weekend or they may have a property out of the city uh, and they come in and they use that almost as a hotel-style apartment when they, you know, in the city, going to the theatre, going to sport, whatever it might be, whatever their interests are. When you've got a 30-something square metre apartment, you know, in Parramatta or, or something like that, yep. marketability for that is going to be pretty pretty, uh, pretty tight. Totally agree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the hardest thing is that even if it's a, you know, we all know that's a better asset than the other asset, the problem is is that buyers will go and get try to get pre-approval and then they'll go to a broker and a broker will say you can't buy anything under 50 square meters and so they won't even be looking at it unless you're buying it at a discount but when you try to sell it a lot of buyers won't even look at it because yeah. they won't be able to get finance and it doesn't take much for you know more and more lenders to keep changing their policies they can change their policy mm. in a fraction of a second we will get an email as brokers and say well no ing are no longer lending on under 50 square meters or mm. we're no longer doing Construction loans. Uh, we're no longer doing a low dock, and banks are always changing their policy. The big fear is when the market is booming, banks want to take risk because it's like, well, market's booming, everyone's happy. But when markets are going sideways or backwards, they're de-risking, and that's what all the banks are doing right now. They're looking at any area that they can see as a risk, and they're no longer offering it. And so, I actually think it'll probably even go, even though it could go the other way. I think it probably could you know, more and more lenders will bring in these minimum floor sizes, I think. Yeah, potentially. And look, there is, a, I guess, a, an argument then that in terms of the bulk of the market, will you have, you know, the majority of people flocking to those smaller size apartments? Probably not. But I do think in certain suburbs, in a city locations, there's a niche for that. And so you could look at that sort of stuff by exception. I had an example the other day on a property I bought and it was interesting. I spoke to the broker. So a deal had been done, already negotiated. And he said, oh, can I just have the address for that property, Shelley? So I gave him the address. And he said, I just want to check that the lender doesn't have any issues with it. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's interesting that they're going down to the level of that particular apartment and complex. Mm. And I thought, well, it's also a little bit late as well because the deal's been done. So if there are issues, you know, I was starting to think, wow, okay, well, how are we going to deal with that? So turned out that it was fine, but this particular lender, he was saying are down now to a building level Correct. in terms mm-hmm. of capturing their exposure. And so not necessarily an issue with the building as such, but just in terms of they've got too much exposure and yeah. that development, yeah. they won't take on any more. And I thought that was quite interesting because that's something I'd dealt with in the past, mm. you know, in terms of LMI and that territory and sort of keeping an eye on that sort of stuff in the market. But it seems like it's taken it to the next level in terms of building address specific and... It is exactly yeah. right that. So what happens is in this case, unfortunately, a client bought an off-the-plan property and we went around to a number of lenders. Presumably before we came Oh, this is bef- way before he's, uh, he's met me. I actually did everything we can trying to get out of the contract, yeah. which can never happen generally because, mm. you know, if you're a smart developer, you've done a watertight contract, which avoids anyone selling, but couldn't get out of the contract, had to buy it. And yeah, we had to do the call around all the lenders and... Uh, you know, we ended up getting it with, you know, one of the big fours, but the other three big fours were no. And even that big four said, look, we will only know when the development's done and when it's actually getting done, we will actually either put it on our register or we won't. And if they won't put it on the register, we wouldn't have known. So it wasn't till I got right away to valuation. They assessed that apartment block and they said, yep, you know what, it's actually not a bad one. We're happy to take a risk on that one. We, yeah, uh, I mean, I had it a number of years ago, and this is when the market was still 
going gangbusters and in this particular case said no their level of exposure in this particular building was too high so once again it wasn't around about the building but it was about the fact that they had too many of the apartments in there and look that spooked the client enough that we didn't buy the property anyway but yeah that was interesting that so that would have been in maybe 2016 Mm. yeah 2016 that was um, yeah, the blacklist postcodes, which mm. is something we haven't really talked about, it is only getting larger. And if you're a bank and you're looking to take on new loans, because this is what we're talking about, if you're seeing declines in certain postcodes, you're more likely just to go, well, why are we taking this risk? You know, why are we taking more money on the books for the sake of it? Let's just spread our postcodes. And this is one of the biggest risks I see in the property market is if there is a decline in certain postcodes, which there, some postcodes are at risk because of supply, mm. you'll start finding banks, no bank will want to touch it and there'll be a complete postcode restriction and no one will be able to buy in that postcode. And if no one can buy, no one, it's only going to make the problem worse. And so that's the big fear I have for certain postcodes where there's lots of apartments is that all the banks will say, well, prices are down 15, 20%. I don't want to go anywhere near it. And so it is a big big point. Yeah, it's quite dangerous, that sort of stuff, because it then sort of self-perpetuates the problem that you've mm. got this sort of no one can sell, no one can buy. And and usually that stuff, you know, again, from my sort of experience in, in previous roles in the industry, has been it, the problem's already happened. So you're mm. picking up the pieces by, by sort of putting in restrictions after the fact. You just when it actually is discounted and selling it probably what's a market value, mm. proper market value, that's actually not a risky um, deal, taking on that security, subject to the, the borrower, of, mm. of course, being sort of satisfactory. But the security itself, someone who sadly paid too much for it to begin with, that's where the issue is. But when it's discounted, come back yeah, to market it's value, point. it's actually a decent security at the right price. So yeah. and to your point, Chris, it, putting in those restrictions can actually just stop that. And then people, everyone who's caught in that market, that postcode, that suburb, will suffer for a period of time mm. until people take a step back and go, oh, actually... Not so bad. Not so bad. Back in your valuation days, and I'm sure the practice probably hasn't changed much, if you're valuing an established property that somebody might be buying, maybe it's three years old for argument's sake, you can't actually use the new sales as comparables, can you? The off-plan sales or anything like that, are they included in, in the comparables? So the general rule of thumb, and it still exists today, is that you have to have three settled sales within the last six months. You can include contracted sales or exchange sales, but the reliance is placed on settled sales. If you're completing a valuation report uh, and you don't have enough information, I mean, the more recent sales would give you a, a better sense of where the market's at, but you're almost forced to go further back in time and look at dated sales. So that, that mm. still exists in the industry. And then your risk with settled sales, of course, is that... If the market's falling, your valuation might come in a little high or if the market's rising, your valuation's going to come in a little low. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So it's it's counterintuitive, I guess. Mm. Uh, I've Yeah, I, I, that's sort of something I guess it was a bit of a bugbear for me. I think common sense sort of prevails. And I think the fear is, well, a, a contract said, say, it might fall over. Yeah, it might, but mm. how what's often the risk? does it? Yeah, yeah exactly. what's the risk? So Very I low think risk. there may be a sort of a shift in that space mm. in terms of looking at that sort of stuff, but... You're right. And in the market we've had, even going back 18 months ago to where we are now, there's not a lot of sales activity. We've certainly got different dynamics mm. in terms of rising and falling, but the volume of sales certainly hasn't picked up. So mm. there's not a, a great deal depth of, of pool of sales for people to look at in a particular area and forcing them to go back further in time is, is pushing them further yeah. away from what's actually happening on the ground in the market today. Yeah. Now, I know you do some buying up in the Blue Mountains. I do. Um, 
Can you tell us a bit more about who's buying up there and, you know, is it tree changes, is it sea changes? I guess it's a tree change. Yeah, there's no sea up there. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's got lakes, but that's about it. So, yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. I I grew up out that way, Um, bought my first house in the Blue Mountains, and uh, I'm a big fan of the area, just generally speaking. I think, uh, you know, there's there's lots to do recreationally-wise. You know, nice bushy aspect. You've got a good train line connection um, from the city up to the mountains. Uh, they've done a lot of uh, road widening up there to sort of make access, vehicle access much better. And there's a great um, local village environment, whether that's in the lower mountains or the upper mountains. So your mm-hmm. typical touristy areas like Lura, Katoomba, Wentworth Falls, Blackheath, really nice villages, beautiful heritage homes, um, you know, a lot of character. You've got to deal with the tourists on the weekend and the buses that might come through, but, but a lot of people don't mind that. And the commute back to the city is probably an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in peak time, but, you know, you can get a decent train connection. Lower mountains, you've got, you know, Glenbrook's a, a really nice village on the way up, beautiful cafe kind of culture there. Um, so a lot of my clients that I'm looking for at the moment up that way are selling out of Sydney, younger couples typically speaking, either just starting with families or planning to have a family. So they've they've bought the inner city terrace um, in Alexandria or Surrey Hills or Redfern and they want a block of land and the alternatives in inner Sydney just don't exist for them in their price point, so they're looking for something further out. So it's a big, oh, big jump though, isn't it? I mean, do they go and rent there first? I mean, how do, how do they manage that to make sure mm. that it is right for them? Because, you know, it, it, a lot of these t- tree change, sea change are, are wonderful in theory, but with the actual reality of life yeah. a long way away from what you used yeah. to is often quite different. So how, how do you help them manage that? So that's something if they if they haven't sort of been in the area and it's just, you know, on a whim, oh, we like the idea of the area, yes, okay, well, have you spent some time out there? What have you done? So my, most of them have. Some of them might have family out there, so it's more returning back to their roots. Yeah. Um, work might be drawing them, you know, if, if depending on the job. So, you know, if you're a teacher or something, um, you know, it, distance isn't such a, a problem. If you're a city worker uh, coming in, that might be a bit, of a bit of a drag. I know people who have done it, actually people, I, you know, former work colleagues who have done that and I was working with them at time and having the conversations with them and within 12 months they brought up the mountains and sold out and, and, and yeah. come back. Yeah. <laughs> Timing-wise they were lucky. Um, mm. But um, I think, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things I certainly have that conversation with them to make sure that it's not just a – Oh, we've got nowhere else to go. Yeah. Let's go there. The northern beaches, the upper northern beaches. Yeah, apparently thing. there's like something like fifty percent of people that go up there within a year think, uh uh-uh, turn around and go back again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, commute and they don't have a train line, of course. But what what's happening in the market in the mountains? Uh it's slowed down, uh, much like sort of other parts of Sydney. It's interesting because it's very different to buying a property in the inner city in the east, which is sort of the other areas that I sort of concentrate on, you get the luxury, typically speaking, of a cooling off period up there, which, <laughs> you know, you don't necessarily get. <laughs> yeah. Uh, five, sometimes ten days is allowed in mm. terms of getting your, your ducks in a row and your pests in your building and your due diligence and that sort of thing. Um, but same sort of dynamic in terms of supply um, is off a little bit, uh, prices are down, sort of in that one million plus bracket you know, generally speaking, I'd say it's probably down 10 to 15% on where it was 12 to 18 months ago and below a million dollars. It's probably come off sort of 5 to 10%. So yeah. decent sort of reduction. But you do get some really nice, good quality homes on big blocks up there. And there's some good schools up there. It does have a lot going for it. But it's got to be right for the for the particular buyer and suit mm. their situation and circumstances. Because the peaks and troughs up there are very different than they are in the inner city. The way the market moves in the inner city isn't, isn't so much 
cyclical in the same way it is in those outer areas. I mean, do you, do you typically see that prices are linked, that sort of they're um, correlated with Sydney movements or does it perform independently of Sydney? I think it performs a little bit independent of Sydney. It still, still comes off and, and goes up in terms of price increases. Yep. But there's a, a good solid local market there. And, and mm. what we were talking about earlier around, you know, what, what a local buyers want and that the same sort of principles apply up there. You know, you've got pockets in the mountains, which are very much touristy. You've got people buying in for their Airbnbs and, you know, their weekenders and so forth. It's sort of staying away from that and looking at what the what the locals would want. Yep. So when I'm looking for a client from a resale point of view, yeah, if, okay. if, if they're going to be yep. there for five or 10 years, maybe have kids, they might grow out of the house. If they then want to take their next move, mm. is this house in the long term going to be something that the locals want or is it, you know, a cute little cottage with no space that, you know, you could probably tart up and stick on Airbnb or stays for a weekend and get a couple of hundred bucks and just use it for that yeah. versus has it got broader market appeal? Is it in the right street? Is it in the right school zone? All that sort of thing. Because you could definitely have that problem of taking your Sydney rose-coloured glasses off and say, you know, you're taking your Sydney mentality up there and buying that cute little house because it's really cute compared to the cute yeah. little weatherboard cottage down in Balmain, for argument's sake, and not realising that the locals don't necessarily want to live in that. It's no different to any market. It's just knowing that market mm. down, I guess, a suburb level, street yep. level, you know, what's the right side of the highway. I mean, there's there's parts, you know, people say, oh, I love this house. No, it's on the northern side of the highway. Yeah. Forget it. <laughs> no one, you know, it's not the preferred area to mm. be in sort of in some of those suburbs and yeah. the upper mountains. So. Yeah. And are they building much new housing up there or is, I imagine if there's a tree cut down, everyone kicks up a fuss. So, you know, <laughs> is there really quite limited <laughs> supply in terms of more housing getting built? I'd say next to none. So yeah. apart from your mm. knockdown rebuilds, there's no there's no new land subdivisions up there. It's sort of established blocks, and that's the only way is to either improve an existing home or do a knockdown rebuild. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of restrictions up there as well in terms yeah. of bushfire regulations. Mm. So if you yeah. are building, uh, you know you've got to dot your eyes and cross your t's. There's a lot more requirements in terms. So the cost of, of building up there. Uh, that's probably why you don't see you do see it happen, but mm. you, you don't see a lot of it, and that's probably why there's a, there's a lot of restrictions. Yeah, that's a big point because I mean our clients right now he's got a house down towards Cronulla, and it's uh, right on the water there, but it's too close to the national park, and so yeah, the cost to him to build was double than what it was mm. to because all the regulations around bushfires. You know, it's probably a good thing for people who are buying up there to to really, if you are looking to do any type of development, understand the costs around that but the supply things i think the most is actually a really big point because if you are living up there and you are investing up there and it is desirable and over time sydney population does keep rising and they're not building anything all the the livability of living up there should stay very similar because the planning laws should stay quite similar and so you haven't got this supply risk there as long as you then just get the really top demand and you get the good streets, et cetera, for a lot of younger clients. And if they cannot afford within the the inner ring and they can't afford maybe the lower North Shore, the Northern Beaches or the lower East or the inner West, they start thinking, what's my alternatives? And Blue Mountains is up there. So it's the Blue Mountains, it's kind of the lower south of the Central Coast or it's the north of Wollongong. And they're kind of your three lifestyle hubs that people say, if I can't live where I want to live, but I live in these three hubs. And those areas, in those areas, they're buying ultra short supply as well. Mm. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to be, I think, a growing trend where people can commute and can work from home more. And uh, the Blue Mountains is a, obviously a good option. Yeah, and a lot of my clients too up there are sort of either, you know, 
locally based in terms of work. So whether they be teachers, you know, I think one, one sort of police officer, that sort of thing, but then also working from home. So um, one of the requirements for a, a client recently was they wanted a studio, a music studio, so they would produce their own digital media stuff for um, various things and so they wanted a studio and that was one of the requirements mm-hmm. with, the, with the property. So working from home, a lot of, a lot of companies these days have got flexible ways of working so it doesn't really matter, you know, as long as you show your face a couple mm. of days a week or you're logging on at the right times, you can work from home. So we might see more of that, I think, as as prices in Sydney, you know, even though they're sort of stabilising, as they continue to grow over time uh, and more people are out there, they will start to look for those alternative markets. Yeah, and people are obviously very excited about this second airport in Western Sydney and it's going to create all these jobs and, um, you know, and it is going to create a lot of jobs, but it's also going to create a lot of housing. There's going mm. to be a lot of estates that are going to be built. And if you are yeah. thinking that um, <laughs> that's going to be great for the economy and that's going to be a big boom, you know, the Blue Mountains, you know, isn't that far away, is it? And so if you were doing, you know, you maybe you're an exec and you work, you know, through the airport or something like that and you want a short commute and you want to live in a nice home in a good area, like the Blue Mountains is pretty high up in that list. So if, if that area does boom, the Blue Mountains has got to be something that kind of leverages off that. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, proximity to Badgerys Creek, the lower mountains, you're probably looking about 30-minute commute. To the upper mountains, you're probably looking at an hour, maybe just over. So, again, it's it's not too far. Veronica's <laughs> <laughs> laughing over here. Oh, I'm laughing also because I'm thinking about aircraft noise and the mountain's probably pretty safe. You know, they're not going to be flying in over the mountains, are they? Oh, well, they could do. The residents, the residents are already keeping their eye on that. I are can they? assure you there's lots of lobby groups yeah. up there already. Oh, I love lots it. of signs in front yards. Yeah, we, so. we love the airport and we hate it at the same time. time. Yeah. 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 But I think given, um, you know, there's not a lot of new supply there coming, it will be, I think, a market that people continue to look for if they don't want that traditional suburban house th- and land type package home. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what's critical and that's what you're, alluding to there, Chris, and and I get a lot of people saying to me, oh, I'm going to invest in Western Sydney. Why? Because there's an airport going in. <laughs> okay. There's also 10,000 new housing Correct, house yeah. and land uh, lots being marketed currently in, in one area not that far from there. I mean, it's there's an enormous amount of supply in the foothills, shall we say, or, or the outer reaches of Sydney, but certainly up in the mountains. I like that idea about limited supply and villages as well. Yeah, and exactly, yeah. obviously the train, you know, the, the commute so that you've got options and all those sorts of things. So it'd be interesting to watch that space. We interviewed Kate Bacos, buyer's agent. I know that you know Kate. And she talked about Geelong and Ballarat and how they're connected to Melbourne and they're both within an hour you know, but on the train, Sydney hasn't got that option of a, a tree or sea change area within an hour. But, you know, potentially, come on, state government, get those rail lines sorted out. Well, there could be an express train to the Blue Mountains in time, you know, or down to Penrith. Yeah, and, and that'll you know, change things. And there's hmm. going to be a new metro going into to Parramatta. And so then you could be, that that's going to shorten up. So, you know, I think that, you know, the, the government is, you know, even, um, you know, Turnbull, you know, one of his ways to save you know he's Who's he? Oh uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um he was he was actually talking and part of his his plan was released and part of it was, you know, put funding towards a high speed rail and things like that. So it's definitely um people have got to get out of Sydney. They're gonna to have to encourage that because um yeah. And population will drive that too. So if you mm. do find more people sort of, you know, um 
sending out to those areas, then that will create that demand. Don't you worry about that in terms of residents, you know, yeah. wanting extra services. There's already, you know, express trains out there. Sort of once you get from the city out to Penrith, then it's sort of all stopped up the mountains. But, yeah. you know, as population <laughs> sort of drives out that way, then you, you never know, you know, the demand for, for faster services, for more mm. frequent, for express services into the city. There's no reason why that can't. And happen. I think you touched on something that's really important, and that is about that owner-occupier appeal up there, the local buyers that want to buy to live. That is fundamentally one of the foundations we look at as, as a sustainable area because we all know that investors drive booms. So if all the investors, you know, listening to this suddenly decide to go up and buy in the in the Blue Mountains, we can take the credit for that, but we're not trying to encourage that sort of thing. <laughs> mm. Well, the hard part with that is you've got problems, obviously, if you're buying owner-occupier, you're buying big houses, yeah. you've got big maintenance bills. Mm. Um, and, low you know, yield. And, and, your, and low yield as well, you know, with um, the property. I think that we, we kind of touched on the one of the risks with the sea change is that you go up there and you don't like it, what you envisaged in this beautiful reality mm. you didn't enjoy. And you did mention it, you're going up there and potentially renting, maybe just trying to rent or Airbnb, you know, for not just once, you know, go up there for six months and go stay up there. Yeah, and do the commute. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's, and and spend weeks up there and and make sure, um, speak to lots of the locals and figure out what's. Try it in winter. Yeah. And summer. Where the agents get to the probably half an hour early to put the fire on. (laughs) 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 Oh, it's nice and toasty in here. Oh, yeah, I got here half an hour ago. Oh, right. Yeah, Yeah, check out the um, the fuel bills as well, you know, the um, the electricity bills. But I think it is important to see these areas in different seasons and go the extremes, obviously. Yeah, Yeah. I've done that with Mm. clients and I've said to them, oh, get the train out there and I'll pick you up and then, you know, We'll have a list of yeah. properties on, but so get the, get the train out there, and so I'll bring you back in. But just so again, so they can experience, experience that. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. And then also, they need to be invited to a dinner party in their old neighbourhood, and they have to realise that they've either <laughs> got to get themselves an Airbnb or they're you know Uber's going to cost a couple of hundred bucks to get home. Especially <laughs> uh, you use your Opal card. You can book a, book a babysitter on an app and then you get the you know the Uber, it's all sorts of come together. Easy. No, oh, millennials are <laughs> they're all over this. An app for everything. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Now, please, Shelley, help our listeners out here. Give us an example of a property dumbo. We can all learn what not to do from these stories. I have, actually, um, and this involves an agent that I was dealing with recently. So from a, um, I was looking at a property for a client and we looked at this property, they fell in love with it, took mum and dad back through the second, second inspection maybe the same weekend or a couple of days later. Absolutely kept falling more and more in love with this property. So I said to the agent, look, you know, Guys are interested, you know, let's sort of start talking. Um, Pricing-wise, they were way off in terms of the guide. So I started a bit lower, put in an offer, uh, came back, sort of started talking tough. No, that won't even that won't even get a seat at the table sort of thing. I said, okay. So I went to my clients and I said, look, put in the offer. I think we it was in the mountains, so we put in an offer. So I think it was sort of 820 and the guide was over 850. And I said, You'd, I, I just can't see in this market that you need to pay that. And they came back and there's – they said, oh, well, we'll go up, we'll go up. And I said, hang on a minute. I said, let's just see how it goes. Anyway, next thing, the property's withdrawn from market and they changed the situation circumstances um, so it wasn't available anymore. Three weeks later, it comes back online. So I rang the agent and said, oh, I just saw that the property's back online. She said, yeah, 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 we've got a buyer on it so you'll have to put an offer tomorrow. 
<laughs> so went back, had a look at the property for the third time. And there was another property that came up the night before. And I said, I think we should look at this one afterwards. So they went back through this place. Third time, not so in love with it anymore. Ah. <laughs> no. It's interesting. Took them to the property afterwards. And again, that was sort of price high. Had a conversation with the agent, knew that these people had bought elsewhere. They were pretty keen to discount um, because they'd bought elsewhere. So that agent would have had us a month ago if, you know, had been a bit more reasonable in terms of sort of back and forth. These clients were in love with that property, but she lost them to, to, to a better property and just by sort of playing games in between. So, mm, very interesting. So, there was, why did, so you reckon the agent took it off the market just to pretend that it was an old stock, basically? Well, I don't know the, the exact, <laughs> I think that was part of the reason. Mm. They'd been there for a little while, so, so it didn't look stale. Yeah. But then she said, oh, they'd changed their plans and they were going to hang on to that and they were going to sell somewhere else. And then when it came back on the market the second time, just the story didn't add up. Yeah. So, you know, what games. she said they were going to do is just playing games and it had been there for a couple of weeks before we even saw it the first time. Mm. So I think, yeah, it was starting to look stale. No one was, when I went through, I was the only one going through for the first inspection. There was no one else around. So I think it was probably starting to, to get a, a bit of a sense of appeal. And yeah. it's still for, for sale today and that's probably a month ago since we did a deal on the pro- on the other property. So It's <laughs> funny though because you can do a quick search on RP Data and or whatever software you want to use and you would know exactly how long it's been on the market, mm. what it was advertised for, how the guide price has changed. Um, but most buyers don't even know that. Um, no, and you remember when we did the uh, the most famous Australian property Dumbo episode? Yeah. You know, this is uh, we won't name names, but but we we chronicled a whole litany of bad decisions, and they overpaid for three properties in a row. But one of them it had been on the market for something like eight hundred eighty six days or something before they overpaid. It's like, oh my god, <laughs> this uh, this information is not actually that difficult to find. Um, yeah. yeah, and if you know that the property's been on the market for a long time, is a really good opportunity potentially yeah. to do a deal or just recognise that those owners are never going to meet the market. And I really like how you didn't push your owners there. Um, you, I you think that's really an you know, admirable trait because, mm. um, you know, the easy thing for a buyer's agent in that position is to probably facilitate that deal and just mm. to get the client just to probably pay a little bit more um, so you can move on to the next client. Um, but that's more of an abundance mindset you've got there. And you thought, well, hang on a sec. I know, just be patient. I've been doing this job long enough to realise that another property will come on the market. Yeah. You've talked them out yeah. of it, even though they were in love with it. And so you had to, that was probably not an easy conversation. Um, and, you know, you've ended up being patient. The better properties come on. They're more in love with that one. They're much happier. Um, and so, you know, that that's, you know, you've got to be like that with a buyer's agent sometimes. You've got to draw the line and walk away from property. So it's, it's, it's a... And it reinforces that trust, I think, in terms of, you know, like you said, yeah. Chris, that experience of, I bet there will always be another property. Veronica would know this mm, as well. Yeah. It, trust us, there will be. And that sort of played out in that particular instance there that let's just go and have a look at this other one. And it was so much better. It had better light. The land was better. It was it was just had a stunning renovation. It was much better value for money. Yeah. Um, and interesting on that one, just sort of getting back to the Val thing. So in that experience there, my client um, got one of the uh, online automated Vals from their lender and said, oh, we, you know, here it is, blah, oh. blah, blah. And um, the lender said, oh, you better be careful if you, you pay outside. And it was just one of those online sort of oh, yeah. You better be careful if, you know, in terms of if you pay outside the of range. the range. And I thought, oh, that's, I don't think that was the intended purpose of bringing in those kind of things. So I, I thought that was sort of interesting because that's sort of another, I think, another um, angle in terms of the valuation industry and space and where things are going, you yeah. know, as well as desktops and, and curbsides and full valves, those automated valuations as well are 
Yeah, and don't use them really. If you're a buyer, don't oh. don't be reading them. And don't be taking any notice of them. We, You've got to go do your own due diligence. I've seen them out completely. Um, I've even had bank valuations on a property. One up in Newcastle was a unit. Um, you know, sometimes when we're doing bank valuations and we're valuing the property, we go with what the RP data report says, right? Now, um, if that bank then takes that valuation because they've they think that that's what it's worth. You know, that's sometimes not the client's fault, is it? Because, you know, there's data out there to prove it. But, you know, I've had valuations come back from banks well over what it's worth, mm. 150, 200 grand, um, because the bank's gone and used an RP data report. Uh. And that RP data report is completely wrong. The property's worth 100, 200 grand less. I saw one recently, actually, and it came in, it was an RP, well, it was a bank automated valuation. I think it's driven by RP data. But what was interesting, at some point in time, this had been subdivided. And that didn't translate into the AVM modelling. Mm. So that, yeah, so the price came at this ridiculously high price. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm. That is, that, that's come through. The address is the same, but the actual, they're seeing that before it was subdivided. Like, Looking at the original yeah, parcel of land yeah, and what it was rather yeah. than. Yeah, it hadn't sort of translated properly through the data. Mm. And, um, yeah, I'm like, well, 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 if you rely on that, you know, you are going to overpay big time. So uh, Yeah, I love your first one. Of the first things you actually talked about was, um, you know, when you're looking at valuation and comparable properties to actually call up the agent mm. and find out in more detail. I mean, if you are serious and you're not using a buyer's agent and you are buying something and don't look at the, what the you know, the, the data reports suggesting it's worth, but look at the comparables and then actually call the agents. You know, you can, the agent can only say, I haven't got time for this and hang up on you. Or maybe they'll give you just that insight and, you know, it's free to make a phone call. So uh, that's great advice. And, and sometimes I think in this market you need to do that. I've noticed um, in the last 12 months a lot of agents on a Saturday afternoon, particularly in the city, would send out their end-of-day updates, auction yep. results. That's either dropped off or there's a lot of price not disclosed on there. So that information yeah. that was available mm. 12 months ago is in terms of price and activity Very is not there. Very good point. That's actually it an could be ex- for a reason. Yes, that's an excellent point too. I was only t- uh, talking about this with an agent the other day. And then when buyers, you know, a lot of our agents have actually come on the podcast and they've said, you know, buyers are really well informed these days. All this information is readily out there. And I can tell you right now that because the market is softer and the either the owner, usually the owner or the agent, doesn't want the price disclosed, that that buyer who is looking at buying another one in the next street, for instance, doesn't have access to that information at the moment. And until it actually goes through the whole, you know, office of, uh, was it the Land Titles Office, yep. you know, it's not going to become public knowledge for another three months. Uh, so that is a very, very good point. Sometimes the agents will tell you. You know, if, if you have a relationship with them, and this comes back to, if you think back to some of the other, indiv- I actually just re-listened to um, Matthew, oh, sorry, Michael, Michael Harris. I just re-listened to the interview with Michael Harris. I think it was number 11 or something. Yeah. And, you know, he's talking about getting, having a relationship with the selling agents, getting to know them and actually not being all cagey and, and, and guarded with them, just actually letting your guard down a little bit. And I think that would be a byproduct and a benefit of doing that. You're actually more likely to get the agents giving you that sort of feedback or at least an indication. It's all going, you know, if, if a property is not withdrawn uh, from auction prior, <laughs> um, going to an auction, I think that's a, mm. um, a great atmosphere for studying the market as yep. it is and seeing people reading body language. I know I listened to some of the earlier podcasts that Damien did where he spoke about that, but it's so true mm. around 
body language and you can see the husband and wife in the corner and one of them's getting nervous and sort of dragging on the yeah. arm, stop, stop bidding, stop. Mm. Um, you can see that sort of stuff play out and I think mm. that's a really good way for you to see what actually something sold for, how many people are interested in a yep. property. So um, I encourage, you know, anyone I'm speaking to that um, if you are thinking about going to um, going to, to buy a property, go to a couple of auctions in the mm. particular area that you're looking at, even if it's not on a property or a price point that you're interested in, just to see how it plays out and just look at you know, I guess how the process works and, and the different sort of behaviours that play out in that environment. 100% agree. Thank you so much, Shelley. This has been really interesting. We've been able to cover some topics that we haven't really dug uh, delved too much into in the past, such as valuation and, and LMI, and obviously getting some insights into the Blue Mountains market as well. So we're obviously wanting to get more and more insights into different markets across the country. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... All about understanding the why behind recent sale prices. And I think that's a really important tip that Shelley gave, which was about talking to agents and understanding, you know, was that sale competitive? Did it sell prior to auction? Was there one buyer that was head and shoulders above all the others? Or was the vendor really stressed and really felt pressured to sell and they sold quickly for a very low price that if they allowed it to be on the market for a bit longer might not have been so low. So these things are really important. But the other thing that we touched on as well, we talked about the type of automated valuation models that you get from various banks and online providers. And this is where you look in Data or you look on PriceFinder or, you know, one of the banks might give you this automated report that gives you a price range which is meant to help you work out what to pay for that property. Now, both Chris and I, we encourage you not to rely on these. Do not look at that price range, in fact. Usually the range is far too wide to be of any use whatsoever, but also it can be very, very misleading. But what I would encourage you to do is look at the comparable sales that they've included in that report. Because usually if you turn the page, there are a list of recent sales that they've used in order to come up with that automated price. Okay, now you need to look at those individual sales and work out yourself whether they're comparable to the property you're looking at buying or not, whether it's inferior or superior or similar, and also how long ago they sold. Now, you can also go into either realestate.com.au or domain.com.au and you can actually look in their sold section and you can type in the address and you can bring up the photos and the floor plan. The floor plan is very important because you want to basically look at the total floor plan, the flow, whether it's a good floor plan or not, but also where the property sits on the block. There's a whole bunch of information you can get from the floor planning. Compare those as well. I'd encourage you also to drive past these properties too if you're not that familiar with the area. But that's a way to make use out of these automated valuation models. Don't just look at the number and rely on that. Please tune in for our next episode when we interview Renault Queen Jane Slack-Smith. Jane has some incredible systems, not just for renovating property in order to add value, but also in how to narrow down out of Australia's 16,000 suburbs down into a handful that are worthwhile investing in at any given time. Really interesting conversation where we cover quite a lot of ground and a lot of behavioural aspects to buying property as well, not just for owner-occupiers, but in 
investors. So tune in for that one. A lot of laughs and excellent, excellent information. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.